Hello and welcome to the Negative Space Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Sippy. As a reminder, all of these episodes are recorded live in front of an actual audience. So if you want to join and bring your questions to the panel, you can check out the Negative Space website for a full schedule and registration as well. Also, the, the video recording is on YouTube, so you can watch that as well. Now then, on to the show. All right, so let's get to today. So today we're talking with Scott Chandler. Scott is the cartoonist of the critically acclaimed graphic novels Squire and Knight, Bix, and Two Generals, which was nominated for two Eisner Awards, selected for Best American Comics 2012, and voted by CBC's Canada Reads as one of the 40 best Canadian nonfiction books of all time. His other works include Northwest Passage, which was nominated for Eisner and Harvey Awards, and the Three, Th the Three Thieves series, which was the winner of the Joe Schuster Award for Best Comic for Kids and listed by Yalsa as a great graphic novel for teens. In 2015, he served as writer-in-residence at the University of Windsor, the first cartoonist to be appointed so by a Canadian university. He lives and works in Stratford, Ontario, Canada, where he is hard at work on a sequel to Squire and Knight. Scott, welcome. There we are. I'm, I are. did it. <laughs> I turned on the camera and the microphone. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Of course. That's always the <laughs> hardest part. Once you get here, it's in the clear. Yeah, I was uh, kind of clicking it a couple times. <laughs> so let's start with, with your creative origin story. Uh, that's sort of the, the original nugget that made you want to tell stories in the first place. I've been trying to think of, of an answer to this question. Um, <laughs> but I honestly can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in telling stories and specifically with words and pictures. I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware of what comics were mm. uh, or remember a time uh, when I wasn't trying to make them myself. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it, it seems to be a part of just who I am. I was aware from an early age of the Batman TV show from the 60s. I'm not quite that old, but I was a little kid in the 70s. And everything on afternoon TV in the 70s was a rerun from the 60s. And so uh, like things like that Batman TV show really were a big part of my day <laughs> as a little kid. And uh, certainly the sound, like, I don't know if kind of that made me understand who Batman was and that led me to comics or, uh, you know, vice versa. Like I say, I, I really can't recall, but. It was definitely in the uh, kind of, you know, soup, the cultural soup that I, <laughs> that I was cooked in. I like the cultural soup. I've never heard that before. I'm going to have to start using I, that. That's I just improvised that on the fly. <laughs> can, can you tell? <laughs> yeah. It was convincing. Um, yeah. But I started, uh, I, I actually have some comics that I made uh, when I was five years old in 1977. Uh, yeah, little Batman and Spider-Man comics that I made, and they're done with crayon, and uh, you know the comics a five-year-old would make. But I sold those to my grandmother's neighbor for twenty-five cents each. And then on my sixteenth, the reason I have them is because on my sixteenth birthday she gave them back to me uh, as a as a gift. So yeah, I've kind of been in the comics business <laughs> since I was at least five. That's and, that's awesome. Yeah, just, I've, I've really never, really never thought about doing anything else or mm -hmm. wanted to do anything else or been good at anything else, frankly. Like, thank God it's this because uh, I was not going to play the trombone or something. <laughs> and I was, I was going to ask because that's something, you know, 
I'm always curious about it, if there was ever anything else you almost ended up doing or any other form your, your storytelling almost took, but it sounds like it was always comics. I, I think uh, for storytelling, it was all, always comics. I think like a lot of people my age, uh, when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, I had a brief fling with archaeology <laughs> until I realized they don't beat up Nazis and then I lost interest. Uh, other than that, it was comics, other than a brief time in 1980. that's great uh so so then we'll skip ahead a bit to like when because there's a difference between being fascinated with comics and making it your career so at what point did it become obvious to you that you could like do this for a living that this could be something you focus on yeah I definitely by the time I was 18 or so I was definitely trying to um kind of point myself towards an eventual career in comics Hmm. And so I was, you know, doing up four or five page sample packages and sending them off to Marvel and DC and, you know, all the stuff you kind of did at the time to, uh, to try to break into comics and, uh, you know, try to picking up skills that I thought I would need, like inking with a brush. I went out to the local art store and bought a brush and, you know, smeared ink all over the place and myself, <laughs> you know, with it, trying to figure out how to work that thing. And um, I mean, there's, there's so many places now where you can go to college and stuff and like learn comics for three years. I, I used to teach in a program like that in, in Toronto. I taught uh, writing for comics for, for five years. And um, there was, yeah, there was nothing like that in like the late eighties when I was in high school. So, uh, yeah, I just, I kind of did everything I could. I just, you know, all I wanted to do was write and draw all the time anyway. So I did those things. Um, but yeah, I also tried to, um, you know, pay close to, I had a really good high school art teacher, which was a blessing. Um, uh, Linda Maskell at Central Elgin Collegiate in St. Thomas, Ontario, shout out, um, who really stressed like basic drawing skills, like drawing from life. You know, whereas a lot of high school art classes are like, you know, make this paper mache egg or something. Uh, <laughs> you know, she was really like drawing, drawing, drawing. She would set one of the students up on like a, you know, chair as like a model or something. Not nude, of course, but, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd you know, get, you know, you'd get some life drawing in, which mm-hmm. otherwise you wouldn't get until college or university. And then when I did go to college, uh, uh, University of Waterloo here. I, I, I just, I, I tried to put together an education for myself in comics. It was a little bit of, it was a little bit of fine art. It was a little bit of film studies. It was a little bit of English literature, a little bit of uh, drama, a little bit of English writing, you know, just anything that I thought could go in the mix and eventually mm-hmm. lead me here uh, is, is what I did. And the whole time, like I say, I just, I kept making my own comics. Me and a friend in high school who wanted to be a writer as you know, young people often do kind of, he wrote a thing and then I, I made it into a comic. And then, uh, you know, by the time I was in university, I was going to conventions with my portfolio and, you know, trying to get something going and did some very small, embarrassing, small press stuff in the nineties. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just kept, kept plugging away, being stubborn and sharpening my skills. So even from a young age, you were out there like, trying to break into this industry were you all self-educated like how did you figure out how the industry works or were you kind of just feeling your way around 
Yeah, like largely self um, educated because, you know, if you're a kid who likes to draw, you just draw all the time anyway, just as, as a hobby. And, you know, whether you know it or not, that's, that's training, it's practice, it's, it's skill building. Uh, but like I say, a couple of good teachers along the way, um, some smart choices that turned out in university for uh, educational stuff and that. And then, uh, again, like I said, kind of going to conventions, being around, uh, you know, talking to editors, talking to other people who are trying to break in, uh, you know, trying to bend the ear of any professional creator who would give you the time of day at that age. Some do, some don't. <laughs> Got some real, so get some good stories and some bad stories about that. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I just, I just went after it. I just, mm. just kind of went around trying to meet and talk to whoever I thought had information that I needed to know. Something that creatives don't often excel at, which is going out of your way to talk to people. We're not usually talkative people, but no, that that's good to hear. Um, yeah, and then. Uh, I had a follow up to that and in my comments, I lost it. So I want to I want to jump ahead to oh, I wanted to ask you about sort of breaking in, you know, it, it's this I feel like it's this ambiguous term that means different things to different people. But was there a point, you know, where you felt like you were finally here doing what you wanted to do and that it was sort of like, I don't know, I don't want to say you felt like a success, but you felt like you were really doing it. Doing yeah, like in comics for real. Yeah. Yeah, there was a couple of things. Um, you know, after doing everything I could in the 90s, carrying my portfolio around to conventions, sending in submission packets to all the then big publishers, um, you know, I, I couldn't get anything going other than some of these like rinky dink kind of really small indie press uh, things. And, you know, I was in my 20s and kind of needed to make a living by that point. So I, I did commercial illustration for, for several years, uh, but still really wanted to do comics that was still kind of the goal and the dream uh so i started a web comic this is like maybe the year 2000 um back before web comics were well they were a thing but there were like 12 of them <laughs> you know and uh, uh but i was one of the 12 <laughs> and i wasn't doing this because i thought this was a way to break in mm. um at that point no one had done it that way i might have been the first for all i know um, but it was just a thing to kind of have on my illustration website that would update every day or every couple of days and, you know, hopefully bring some, some, some business that way. And also just to kind of scratch the storytelling itch for me. Uh, I was not doing this as a kind of a professional career advancement move at all. You know, I wish I'd been that smart, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I started doing this strip and, and after a little while I started getting uh, emails from uh, Jay Torres, who's a comics writer here in Canada. He does a lot of great work for kids, wrote Teen Titans for many years. Uh, um, uh, just really, I, I could list his whole resume, but we'd be here the, the full hour. Uh, great, great comics writer, great guy, uh, really uh, is always on the lookout for new talent. Like a lot of writers, he's always looking for artists to work with. And he has brought a lot of people into the comics business. And uh, I am definitely one of them. And uh, he, so he, he was emailing me about this uh, online webcomic of mine. And, uh, you know, eventually he said, well, I've got this uh, pitch in at Oni Press. 
And, you know, if it goes, you'd be a great artist for it. And by then, like I say, I, I wasn't really looking for comics anymore. I'd like, I'd kind of given up a little bit. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't even know who Oni Press was. They were pretty new at the time too. <laughs> and then a couple months later, he, he emailed me back and was like, yeah, I got, I got a green light and uh, the editors want to talk to you and see some samples and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and so Jay and I did that book together, which was originally a, going to be a four issue miniseries. But it was 2003 uh, is when it was released anyway, which was kind of the breakthrough year for graphic novels and bookstores. Mm. And that was the year, as you may recall, that it kind of changed from a periodical business to a book business. Suddenly, a lot of publishers were like, let's take this four issue miniseries and make it an original graphic novel. And we've kind of been there ever since. (laughs) So, yeah, our four issue miniseries became an original graphic novel called Days Like This which I do not have in front of me, but um, uh, was a good little start into the business for me. Hmm. And then Jay and I did another book together. And then after that, I started pitching my own stuff. So the, you know, getting that first book with Jay for Oni Press, who seemed like a real, uh, you know, a real legit comics publisher that I was working with for the first time. And they were great, great place to start, especially 20 years ago, Oni Press, like, was hitting home runs all over the place. They were kind of the place for new talent in the early two mm. thousands. And I was very lucky to be a part of that. Um, but after the two books with Jay, I started pitching my own stuff and I pitched them uh, this book called Northwest Passage, which was the first thing I ever wrote uh, for, for myself to draw and they, and they bought it. And so, you know, that was kind of the second, that was kind of the second big moment for me where I'd kind of broken in as an artist but now I had broken in as a writer mm. and they were giving me my own book. And like, I can remember the little dance I did around the kitchen <laughs> after I got the email that that project was greenlit. Cause then I really felt like, okay, like I'm in as an artist, I'm in as a writer, you know, there's like, this is like the third book by this point, there's going to be more books. I think I can start calling this a career. And uh, so, yeah, those were both, those were big, both big moments and, and quite unexpected. I want to go back to because you meant it's a, it's a great example of putting your stuff out there and how it can lead to to opportunities. Uh, oh. I, I was curious when like when you felt ready to start putting yourself out there because I know like there's a difference between putting stuff out there that that you know could get attention. There's nothing but like putting stuff out there that you just aren't ready to start sharing yet. So how did you know when it was ready to start sharing this stuff? Well, that's a good question. I really think it's never too early to start putting your stuff out in front of people. If you wait until you feel like your work is a hundred percent there, you're never going to put any work out there. Like I've been, I'm 51 years old. I've been making comics for 20 years. I still don't feel like my work is quite there. (laughs) (laughs) Like Squire and Knight just came out, but I drew it a couple years ago and I'm already seeing the panels. I would go back and redraw and like I'm working on book two now and it seems much better to me, but a year from now, it's also going to look like my old work. And it's t- like being an artist is kind of, you're, you're ping-ponging back and forth between just like crippling self-doubt and outrageous self-confidence. And like on, on one of the days that you feel like you're really doing something, put your work out there. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't like, at best, I get my stuff to about 85% of what it is in my head. 
Like that's a really good, that's a good day at the desk. And yeah, you're never going to feel a hundred percent ready. It's like having a baby or something. If you, if you wait until you feel like you're financially uh, <laughs> prepared, whoever feels financially prepared <laughs> for anything, <laughs> it's, it's one of those kind of situations. Yeah. You will, you're, you're never going to feel a hundred percent confident in your work. If you do, that's probably a bad thing because you're going to stop growing and trying to top yourself. So I would, I, I really, you know, I always tell people like start a web comic. Don't, don't draw sample pages. Don't audition, just start making comics. And it's a lot, obviously with a web comic, it's a lot harder to get noticed now than it was 23 years ago when I did it. There's, you know, everyone in their uncle has a, a web comic, but you know, if it's any good at all, you will start attracting readers and, and, and they'll tell you if it's good or not. But uh, yeah, you, you just, just get, get stuff out there. And if, if nothing else, it gives you an excuse to draw every day and to produce something. And, you know, you may find the feedback from an audience helpful or unhelpful. But uh, either way, putting stuff out there is the first step whatever whatever stage you're at just mm -hmm. just get get some work out there i love that and then i want to ask about uh the which was going to be the subject of this whole talk which is your connection to history uh, uh what is it about history that made you want to write stories fiction and nonfiction, based in in past times i mean part of it was just the practical uh, kind of intro that i had into the comics business because that first book i did with jay torres uh, days like this was set in the early 60s jay was writing it but you know i had to draw it so i had to you know it's a little before my time so you know you dig into some books and some internet research and all that stuff and you know you gotta design costumes and sets and all these things that look like the early 60s and you know specifically a california music business early 60s and that book did well enough that, uh, you know, I started, you, you know, people seem to think that I was successful with that, with, with you know, getting a, a look that felt, uh, you know, convincingly, period. So the second book Jay and I did together, which was called Scandalous, was set in the 50s in Hollywood and was about two rival newspaper columnists. And so, you know, you dive in, you do a bunch more research, Hollywood in the 50s, blah, blah, blah. And so by then I was starting to get a bit of a reputation as, you know, a guy who can handle historical material mm -hmm. is not afraid of doing some research. <laughs> and so when it came time to pitch my own thing, Northwest Passage, here it is again, out of print, unfortunately, but uh, I got one. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it kind of seemed even two books in, I had already kind of built a bit of a, a niche. And so I remember pitching them a few ideas, but I think they were all set in some historical period or another. Mm. Uh, but but also just in terms of um, kind of inspiration and, and, you know, getting ideas of things to write about. You know, history is just full of interesting characters and events and episodes. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the word story is right there in the word. <laughs> and, uh Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a very fertile environment for ideas. The world's been a long, around a long time, and and a lot of stuff has happened. 
and uh, some of it uh, may be interesting to make comics about. I, I have found it is. Uh, so yeah, yeah, both in a kind of a practical career sense and just in an inspirational sense, I, I, I find it interesting, and, and I'm not afraid to do the research. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's the way to really kind of force yourself to learn something. Uh, you know, there's an old saying: if you want to learn everything there is to know about a subject, write a book about it. <laughs> and that's true. I mean, if if you're gonna if if you're gonna write a book about World War II, which I did, uh, you know, you got to know your business about World War II and so on, whatever the whatever the era or event is. Yeah, I was a history major in college, so you're you're preaching oh. to the choir there with that. Uh, yeah, there you go. But I wanted to ask you too. You mentioned research many times, and research can often be this this endless rabbit hole of when do I know enough to tell the story. So I'm curious how you balance research and historical accuracy with still having time to tell the story and how much you balance, you know, the importance of historical accuracy with the importance of telling a good story. Yeah, that is something that it's a, it's a great question for starters and is something that people who write any kind of historical material think about all the time. Speaking only for myself here, using my I statements, story really has to come first. I'm, I'm not a historian. I'm not, I'm never writing educational comics. You know, the the primary goal is never to just feed people a bunch of information about some historical subject. There's always a story. There's always a theme that is interesting to me. um, And that's, um, you know, to me, I'm going kind of more in the direction of literature than history. That said, you've got to know your subject well enough to be convincing about that subject. Mm -hmm. If I'm telling, I'm going back to World War II again, just just because it's an easy example. (laughs) If I'm writing a book set in World War II, you know, you've, you've got to know a convincing amount about the Second World War, because if you get it wrong, the audience immediately is like, bing, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So, yeah, while, while knowing your subject, you've also got to tell the story you want to tell and not be pulled off in every different direction, just trying to cram the reader full of factual information, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. I, I f- have found the, the times in my career when I've done nonfiction uh, versus fiction, uh, I, I have found the two to be really different to write. Mm-hmm. Um, fiction is additive, right? You're starting with a blank page or a blank screen and you're filling it with stuff until you feel like your story is done and then you stop. Nonfiction is subtractive. You do a ton of research, right? And you've, so you've got all this research about, you know, subject X and you have to find a story in that by taking away all the bits in your research that aren't the story, right? And sometimes it's hard to know when you're done. Like with fiction, you're kind of done when you say you're done. But with nonfiction, you know, maybe you're halfway through writing the thing and somebody opens a closet door and they find a shoebox full of letters or something from 70 years ago. And that's new research that you've got to incorporate and then kind of find your story again. That happened to me while I was writing two generals 
This is a book uh, mine from 2010. It's about my grandfather's experiences in the Second World War. That's probably why I keep defaulting to World War II as an example. This was the first nonfiction historical thing I'd ever written. And I, I really learned a lot during it about how to handle historical material. But that, that situation I described happened to me where I was, I was halfway through a first draft of the book and I connected with the books about my grandfather and his friend Jack. And I connected with Jack Chrysler's widow about halfway through the project. And she, of course, had a ton of information about Jack that I hadn't known on the first pass and which had to, uh, it, it really just affected the whole book. I had to just kind of start again. <laughs> and that's, that's writing nonfiction for you. So speaking of differences of approaches, you also write for kids, which Squire and Knight, which we're going to get to here in a second. Uh, yep. You had the Three Thieves series. Uh, what what how does your approach differ depending on your audience like do you approach writing for kids differently than you do writing an adult adult story i really don't it's it's probably not an answer that's going to lead to a lot of discussion <laughs> because okay. the, well, like the answer is pretty much no i'm i'm one of those people like i've read uh, like read, i've read, read interviews with uh, maurice sendak and uh, and and people like that who just maybe didn't even like children. <laughs> Roald Dahl, I think, was a, was an example of a children's author who didn't like children. I mean, there there is a certain extent to which I probably don't intellectualize quite as much writing for kids. You know, if if you really backed me in a corner and and, and made me uh, <laughs> suggest a difference, uh, it's like if I'm writing for kids and I think of something fun, it goes in. Like I I. I if I'm writing for adults, I might spend more time trying to talk myself out of that crazy thing, you know, because like our 40 year olds going to buy this. If it's 12 year olds, you're like, yeah, let's just, let's just throw this hilarious thing in and, uh, and kids will love it. And they, and they usually do. But other than that, like when it comes to story craft, just no, no difference for me. There's really, really no difference. I'm just trying to, you know, there's, there's a lot of, balls to juggle when you're uh, writing. And uh, I mean, it's challenging enough without trying to second guess, you know, the age of the reader and, you know, just all, all that stuff. My sensibilities are fairly PG-13 to begin with. I don't think I have some hardcore sex book in me or, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, every fourth word out of my character's mouths uh, isn't the F word or, uh, and uh, any anything like that. So my my stuff tends to play to a pretty wide audience. I always use Pixar as a as a good example. Mm. At least Pixar kind of in their classic days, you know, that first 15 years or so of 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 the Pixar studio when it just seemed like they couldn't lose. Yeah, their their films aren't for kids per se. Uh, you know, uh, some of them skew younger than others, but for the most part, they're just really, really solidly crafted stories mm -hmm. that would appeal to small children or adults or grandparents or uh, whoever, you know, they're just, it's just good storytelling and they're not dialing down the craft because there's young people in the audience. If anything, they're, they're dialing it up. Mm -hmm. Like some of those early Pixar films were, the best films of the year they came out. Yeah, I, I, I've always just kind of, yeah, I've, I've, I've really just wanted to cast as wide a net as possible with my stories. You know, not in a kind of a ingratiating, let's please everyone kind of way, but just, uh, you know, 
in the way that, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, Pixar or early Jim Henson or, you know, people, I, I often describe myself like I want to be the Tom Hanks of comics. I want to, <laughs> I want to do like quality work that appeals widely. <laughs> and, and that's just, that's just me. That's just my vibe. It's just my, my sensibility. So I don't really, I, I really don't think much about it. I always just, I always just go out every time I pick up my pencil, I try to do something of value with it. And in terms of who to sell the work to, I, I kind of leave that to the marketing department. You know, like I know that Squire and Knight is a middle grade book. I don't, not even sure exactly what that means. Is it nine to 12 or eight to 12 or whatever? Somebody else's problem as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I've seen some of the reviews for this that like point out that the word damn is in it, like contains the word damn. Apparently that's a problem in the Bible Belt or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but apparently I only did it once. So, so I'm in the clear. I, I like the division between children's and adult as do I include this outrageous thing or do I think about including this outrageous thing? I think that's a great way to think about writing for children or not. Like that's right. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> it's really the only difference I can think of when I'm doing this versus a two generals. So let's talk about Squire and Knight then, uh, which you can see here. You just held it up. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm probably going to say that about 15 more times. We'll get, before it, get it going on both sides of the screen right now. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 really phenomenal. So I want to ask you what the sort of initial because you mentioned you'd had this done for a while. What was the the initial sort of seed that sprouted this story for you? Well, I actually swore after I'd finished my Three Thieves series. I'm going to hold one of those up as well. This is the first book, Tower of Treasure, which I this was published in 2010, and I'd started writing it a few years earlier for my own children. I swore when that series was over, it was seven books, that I was never doing kids fantasy again which obviously turned out to be a lie. Anytime you swear you're not going to do anything, you'll be doing it within five years is what I've learned <laughs> in my life. A couple of different things kind of happened. And again, it was kind of a practical thing and, and kind of an artistic sensibility thing. The practical thing was that all of my adult pitches were tied up with a particular publisher who I had a first look deal with and uh, just couldn't pitch, you know, just they were sitting on all of the pitches I had available. And so my agent and I had a conversation. It's like, you know, I want to get something else going. Like, you know, what, like, what can we pitch? And so I think so I like kind of had this thing in my back pocket. It's like, it was kind of more for kids. And I was like, yeah, let's throw this out there. And, you know, see, see if it gets any interest. And, you know, so yeah, some of it was just kind of the simple, just business of being a professional freelancer and where's their work and how can I generate some work for myself? The more kind of, you know, artistic creative answer is there's been a lot in the culture in the last seven years where it's you know, a lot of thinking is what can I do? What is the role of an artist? in these times, <laughs> right? Like anti-intellectualism has always been part of our culture. But in the last, let's say, seven years, politically, also with the pandemic and stuff, a lot of those kind of chickens have come home to roost. We, we've really seen in the last several years the dangerous road that anti-intellectualism eventually leads us down. <laughs> I really wanted to do a book that was about, you know, without being explicit about any of that, that just was pro-smart. 
<laughs> that was, I really wanted to do a book that was about how reading is good. Science is real, <laughs> you know, you know, not rushing to conclusions. Uh, yeah. Not being a, you know, smarmy overbearing twit, uh, how all these things are good things. And, you know, the audience, the audience for that is young people. You know, you, you want to catch people as early as you can with that message. I think it just, it just dovetailed nicely with this image I'd always had in my head of these two characters, you know, this squire and this knight and the, the squire is the smart one, but the knight gets all the credit because he's the knight, you know, even though he's a overbearing idiot. <laughs> so, so it, it all kind of worked. It, it all just kind of seemed to come together and it felt timely mm-hmm. and it, it, it felt like the right time for me creatively to tell this story that I was kind of passionate about. It also seemed the right time in the industry for a book like this was certainly the right time in my career. Ended up doing another kid's fantasy series. I love how easily you packaged what this book was about. Like, I know you say you leave the marketing up to the marketing people, but pro smart. (laughs) You packaged that so well. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious, did, so did this story begin with a theme, like this theme of being pro smart? Did you have the characters already? I think I had the characters already. I, I, I write in the um, extras in this book. There's a few pages of kind of process, mm-hmm. you know, process junky stuff here at the end. Uh, I write in here that um, uh, it, I think the year is 1988. The movie came out. Uh, there's a British comedy film called Without a Clue that is um, it's Michael Caine plays Sherlock Holmes and Ben Kingsley plays uh, Watson. And the conceit of that movie is that is that Watson was the real crime-solving genius, and Michael Caine was this clueless actor who came in to kind of be a front for the doctor's, like you know, side crime-solving activities. I I don't think I've ever even seen that movie, <laughs> but I I just always thought the idea of it was great and hilarious and and a, and, a, and a fun twist on you know a story that we've seen played straight a million times. So I think I started with the idea of the knight and the squire, and they would be those two types of characters. You know, I probably had that part of it for a while, but it wasn't until all the thematic stuff kind of, you know, sometimes you hold on to an idea for a while and maybe you let it go because it doesn't grow. It doesn't blossom into something interesting. But sometimes the longer you hold on to an idea, the more timely it becomes or, or the more another idea kind of merges into it you know, it becomes something bigger and better than, than you initially thought it might. So that that's what definitely happened in this case. Uh, but sometimes it's hard to remember, like, where, where do ideas come from? It's, (laughs) it rarely just hits you all at once. It's, it's six different ideas that you have that eventually kind of merge into one idea. This is, you know, I'm always reading middle grade graphic novels and I recommend them. This one's so easy to recommend because of all these middle grade graphic novels out there, I feel like it's such a great self-contained story where it felt so satisfying from start to finish. Like the balance was perfect. There's humor, fantasy, mystery, dragon. Like it all balances <laughs> so well. And I'm yeah. curious, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If it was as easy to write as it is to read, it's such a smooth read. And I wonder if this story came easily for you or was it pretty labor intensive? I got to say it did. Mm. It doesn't, stories don't always come 
writing, as anyone who writes will tell you, is sometimes a, a real wrestling match with yourself and the the gods. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes it's an epic struggle. But this, once I, you know, the idea was so simple and very clear, and I kind of knew, you know, what I wanted to say with it. And so, you know, figuring out a chain of events, you know, of a conflict that, that spoke to that theme was, you know, writing is still difficult, but mm -hmm. of all the things I've written, I think it was probably the least difficult. This mm -hmm. book just kind of came spilling out of me. It was kind of my pandemic book. You know, a lot of the things that I was thinking about and wanted to say and uh, stuff during, during those years um, just, just kind of came out. And then on the subject of theme, I'm always curious how how artists and writers engage with theme. Were you actively thinking like, oh, I have to drive this point home or was it just kind of happening naturally? With this book, yes. Driving that point home is kind of the point of this book. Mm -hmm. And this is the first book of uh, a series. Um, there, there's a second book that is nearly finished. and But I... It, it does stand alone and, and was meant to. The, the second book is just another story that is also going to stand alone and kind of, you know, puts a slightly different spin on the theme. But uh, yeah, with this book, I was very much writing. I, I knew, you know, moral is a terrible word and, and lesson. And, you know, I, I didn't want to be as explicit as any of that, but I, I definitely knew what I wanted people to take away from this story uh, and was yeah writing writing to that the whole way mm -hmm. which turned out to be good you know I think that's one of the reasons why the book is so cohesive and and uh, and all that stuff is because uh, I, I knew what I was talking about most of the time <laughs> it's usually harder it's usually harder <laughs> and you brought up the back matter and I had a question about something you'd mentioned in the back matter as well uh, which is that it was in relation to character design. You said that after you've been writing a character for a while, you can nail their appearance in a drawing or two. I'm curious. So when you're developing a character, like when do you go into the design? Do you already know who they are before you start drawing them? Or do you draw them first and then sort of fill in their personal details as they go? Depends. With the lead characters, I'm sure I probably started sketching uh, early on, even just to include in the pitch. Uh, there, there would have been some character designs included in the pitch. But this is one of the advantages of writing and drawing is because even if you did leave all the drawing until after the writing was done, you've still spent an awful lot of time with those characters. <laughs> you know, you really know them backwards and forwards by the time you finish writing. So uh, I at least find it, find it fairly easy to um, get what's in my head character wise onto the page. At the very least, I know what I don't want. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I usually have a, I usually have it pretty well cornered in one particular area and uh, a few sketches. It's usually all it takes to, to find, yeah, that's the one. Hmm. And then I want to talk about the business side a bit because we, we often talk about traditional publishing uh, and, and sort of the, the barriers that are there. Uh, and this came through an imprint of Macmillan for a second. So I, I want to rewind a bit and, and find out about where your traditional publishing journey began, when you got an agent, when that route sort of kicked off. Yeah. Um, I made the jump from kind of the comics direct market world mm -hmm. to the sort of mainstream book market world in about 2007. 
which I guess is kind of early. People like Jeff Smith were having a huge success at Scholastic with his reprints of Bone. And um, suddenly it just seemed like, yeah, that's where, you know, every, every publisher, every book publisher suddenly wanted to get into graphic novels because, uh, you know, of, of what Scholastic was doing. And that was good for people like me who never quite fit into the direct market comic book world. On the, uh, on the strength of the success of Northwest Passage, which I showed you earlier, I pitched this to McClellan and Stewart, which is an old, venerable Canadian literary publisher, actually owned by um, Random House. And um, yeah, this, this is the book about my grandfather. And so, yeah, another kind of historical project. And that was kind of my you know, big break into the world of kind of mainstream publishing and the three thieves books happened around the same time. So suddenly I was, I had a lot of work to do both on the kind of adult and the kids side uh, with two different publishers in the book market. I did not have an agent at the time. Yeah. It just kind of happened because Northwest passage turned some heads uh, in retrospect. I probably should have had an agent. I, I, I'm very good at knowing my rights. I, uh, I am not afraid to kind of negotiate on my own behalf, all that stuff, but just things like subsidiary rights. And, you know, that's your kind of film, TV, media, eBooks, blah, 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 all those things. You know, an, an agent knows what you should be letting go of or not letting go of, or what percentages and stuff for all, for all those kind of things. And, uh, and also just being able to kind of open doors. I mean, I had more work, like I say, than, than I knew what to do with at the time. And so I felt like, oh, why do I need an agent? I'm getting all this work. You, down the road, eventually you find something in your contract that you're like, oh, right. And then also when it comes time, when it came time to not uh, have a bunch of work, <laughs> I started thinking, what's the next step? Like I want to go, you know, I was working with this big Canadian literary publisher, but I, you know, the next step was obviously big American literary publishers, you know, your, your, your big five, your Simon and Schuster's, your Macmillan's, you know, all that stuff. What finally made me get an agent was I started shopping around this book, Bix, which came out in 2020. This is a very experimental a book that kind of tries to visualize music in different ways. It's mostly silent. It's kind of depressing. It's about jazz in the twenties, which nobody cares about anymore. <laughs> And it was um, it was just a difficult book to sell. I mean, lots of people were kind of thought it sounded cool, but every editor I talked to was like, this sounds really interesting. We hope someone will publish it someday. <laughs> so that's the thing that kind of made me finally break down and, and start working with an agent. And, you know, I'd had one recommended to me and I finally, you know, gave her a call and said, can you help me sell this book? And uh, she came back to me six weeks later with uh, Simon and Schuster, who published so it was clear that she was going to be doing good work for me right away. But if nothing else, like an agent, like that's really what they can do for you is open those doors at the biggest publishers. You know, I've been in the business a long time. I know some people, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Here's what I'm working on. But yeah, those, those, those big publishers are not just going to deal with whoever, uh, you know, that you bump into at the bar at, Chicago comic-con, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, what, what I've really found that my agent is able to do is she's able to open the big doors. 
and once they're open, I kind of know what to do, but, uh, yeah, I need, I need someone with the keys to those mm-hmm. doors. So do you have like a, cause I know different agents work in different ways. Some have an editorial approach where you bounce ideas off them and work together or, or is she just someone where you hand her a finished product and say, go sell this? Yeah. Ours is very much a business relationship. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if you're watching this and you're looking for an agent, you know, you talk to them. It's a, it's a relationship. It really is almost like a marriage. And, uh, you know, some people are not going to be suited to each other. I certainly talk to agents, you know, I talked to a really big name agent who seconds into the conversation. I thought this isn't going to work. I mean, you know, she was a bulldog and like, I'm a bulldog. (laughs) Like I don't, I don't need that. (laughs) And I also don't want an editor who, um, like you say, kind of works with me editorially. I, I you know, have a pretty clear idea what I want to do with my own work. I want an agent who likes my work and respects it and is just going to help me sell it. But whatever you need, there's probably an agent out there willing to do that. I know a lot of people who do clo- work closely with their editor on pitches and on books as they're in production. Uh, yeah, not, not for me. I don't, I don't need necessarily need an intermediary between me and my editor. I need an intermediary, I need an intermediary between me and the green light I want to get <laughs> from, from the publisher. And like I say, after that, I can take it from there. So there were multiple agents you were considering whenever you settled on the one you, you, you ended up with? I had, uh, there was one, there was, there, there was one, yeah, really really big name agent that I, it, it was tough. It was tough. Cause uh, you know, she represents some amazing people and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, represented some of my heroes and uh, it's like, I can't believe I'm turning this down, but I gotta, this is not what I want. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. Though. I think that's something that a lot of times writers and artists think, well, any agent's a good agent and they'll just, they'll take it. So you had yeah. a pretty clear, idea well, of what one, you wanted. one of the advantages to having waited so long to getting an agent and there were some disadvantages which i said but one of the advantages was that artists kind of came to me I, mm. I i never had that experience of like oh i'm a struggling writer can't get my first book published i got to get an agent to get this book published it must be terrible to be in a position where you've got to essentially take any agent who will work with you that must be really tough. And I don't have any advice about how to get around that. You know, I think in the end, it's probably better than not having an agent in the book market. Uh, But yeah, for me, um, you know, I at least had a little bit of ability to shop around. So I, I shopped around, like I said, I I found, uh, found an agent who, uh, who liked my work and kind of could see where I was going and wanted to help me get there and uh, who wanted to work for me instead of me working for her, if that Mm. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, And then real quick, I wanted to ask too about uh, publishing Squire and I and, and what the process was like. Was that a pretty easy sell? I, it, it came out with First Second, which is one of my favorite. I think they're one of the best young, young. I, I love First Second. You know, I'm not just saying that because I'm working for them now. <laughs> I have always, uh, you know, when uh, like before the agent, when I was sending pitches out, I would always start with them first. Hmm. I've always loved what they were. They, they take big swings. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they've they've put out some great books, and even the you know books of theirs that maybe weren't so great, like you, but they were at least ambitious. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah, I always thought that was kind of the place for me that kind of straddled the comics world and the mm-hmm. and the 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 book world and the you know kids comics and adult comics, and it just it's it seemed like their values and my values 
uh, you, you pretty well lined up and, and uh, I always wanted to, uh, to be published with them. They were always kind of my brass ring, you know, publisher that I was, you know, trying to try to get, and I pitched them so many things that they turned down. But yeah. Squire and Knight seemed to be the thing. I, I don't know if it's just that the kind of the kids fantasy market is, you know, uh, a bit of a no brainer right now. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what it was. It's just the, the pitch hit a kind of a demographic zone that they liked or yeah, maybe the, who, who knows what it is. <laughs> who who knows what happened there, but for whatever reason, they, they liked this pitch and didn't like the others. I mean, they liked the others, but it was another one of those situations where this is great. Good luck with it. <laughs> so, so was that something where, did you tell your agent like, hey, let's go to first second? Or, or did she know that that was sort of like your, your dream place? Yeah, I think she did. But I bumped into Mark Siegel, the publisher at first second at uh, the Toronto Comic Arts Festival in 2017 i want to say uh just in the lunch line <laughs> you know and we just happened to strike up a conversation and uh and, and had a nice little chat over uh over lunch at that festival and this is another reason why you know going to things like that is sometimes a good thing you know not you don't necessarily come out of it with work on your way home from the festival but you know, it's the contacts you meet and the conversations you have sometimes pay off. Because after that, I, I emailed my agent immediately and said, I think, I think Mark Siegel for a second is, is ripe for a pitch at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> and he was. That's great. So we're almost out of time. So I want to give you a chance. Now you've already shown a bunch of books uh, and this one's been here over my shoulder this entire time, but uh, if you, whatever you want to promote and where people can find you online or, or whatever you want to throw out there. Well, obviously Squire and Knight is the new thing. It's been out about a month. It's available wherever you buy books. Uh, Josh seems to like it. <laughs> <laughs> I do very much. <laughs> it's a ringing endorsement. Uh, so uh, go get that. Uh, and also, even though it's three years old now, I, I held Bix up earlier. This came out about uh, six weeks into the start of the pandemic, the first lockdown in April 2020. A lot of people still don't even know about it. A lot of people don't know I had a new book out because it was the first lockdown. Bookstores weren't even open. Mm. So in some respects, this is still kind of a new book as well. If you're, It's way more adult. It's historical. It's biographical. It's experimental. It's, I don't know, if you're into all those things. Uh, I might go find this as well. It could use your support. You can find me on Instagram. I'm at, I'm at Scott Chandler. That's about the only social media I do anymore. The others are all pretty gross for one reason or the other. I have a website at scottchandler.com. It hasn't been updated in a million years, you know, <laughs> like a website. I really got to get Squire and Knight on there. That's my next, <laughs> that's my next project is getting Squire and Knight on my website. Uh, but you can certainly go check that out. It's got information about all my older books anyway. Awesome. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was a great conversation. I, I really appreciate you. The hour flew by, man. That was great. It did. I know. I looked up and I'm like, surely not. Now I have to ask him to promote <laughs> things. <laughs> yeah, no, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. Absolutely. So to all of our listeners, we're going to be back in two weeks and this will be up next Wednesday and we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Right on.